Exodus chapter 32, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together and Aaron said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to him, Okay, take the rings of gold that you are wearing off, and take the earrings out of your ears, and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf or bull. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before this idol. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored to the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, O Lord, from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I went to college at the University of Mississippi, also known as Ole Miss, in the late 90s. And one of the things that students from Ole Miss like to do in the late 90s on a random night is to make a pilgrimage to a nearby town about 30 minutes away, Holly Springs, Mississippi. Holly Springs sat right equidistant between Oxford and Memphis. It also sat equidistant between Tupelo and Memphis. And in Holly Springs was a wonder to behold at any time of day. It was a little house that had a name. The name was Graceland 2. T-O-O. Graceland 2. It was run by a man named Paul McLeod. Paul McLeod kept this house, this shrine, this miniature museum of a house that Elvis lived in when he was one years old that was right between his birthplace of Tupelo and where he grew up 
in Memphis and Holly Springs, Paul McLeod kept this shrine to Elvis running 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so you could go at any time. And so it was a pilgrimage that people like to make. For example, sitting around on a Tuesday night when you're supposed to be studying and you're bored and you thought, let's go to Graceland too. Because it was always an amazing experience to go to Graceland too. And in fact, if you went twice to Graceland too, you were deemed a lifetime member. Paul McLeod was an eccentric individual who some would say, and I could give testimony to this, hardly ever, if ever, forgot a person's name. In fact, anytime someone would visit, he would take their picture and put it on the wall. And so his walls were just peppered with pictures of people that visited. But really what his shrine was about was Elvis. He arguably, off the record, had the largest collection of Elvis paraphernalia outside of Graceland itself. He had stacks and stacks of magazines. He had tapes and tapes. This is back in the you know, VHS, no internet, no DVR days, of film footage of Elvis's concerts. He was said to have an 8 millimeter film, which was the last film of Elvis that anyone ever had before his death. Of course, he never showed this to anybody. To call this man obsessed would be an understatement. It was well known and well documented up until 2015 upon his death and the closing of this estate that early in his life, uh, after the birth of his son, who he named Elvis Aaron Presley McLeod, his wife looked at him and said, it's either, you have to make a choice, it's either me or Elvis. And he chose Elvis. And they subsequently divorced, and then there this man lived in Holly Springs, Mississippi, uh, drinking, this once again documented, 24 cans of Coke a day, never sleeping, and just waiting at any time of any day when someone would come to his door and he could speak as fast as an auctioneer talking about his love and obsession for Elvis. What do we call this? other than weird, idolatry. This is idolatry in an extreme fashion. This is overt idolatry. This is extreme idolatry. This man had made a god, not only of Elvis, but this man had actually made a god of loving Elvis, of Elvis memorabilia, of all things Elvis. This is Elvis is what this man's life revolved around. You see, the way in which we are made, we are all made to worship something. And as odd as it sounds for Paul McLeod to affix his affinity and his affection and love upon this person, Elvis, which I love Elvis, I'm from Memphis. Interestingly enough, he's not the only one seemingly throughout the world that worships Elvis. But the truth about all human beings is we find our worth outside of ourselves. We all seek to find our worth outside of ourselves. It can be in another person. It can be in a philosophy. It can be in an ideology. It can be in power. It can be in money. It can be in control. We are all seeking to find meaning and purpose. We're seeking to find identity outside of 
of ourselves. And as a result of this, human beings live a restless life. We live a restless existence. The great theologian St. Augustine said that God made us for himself and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him. God made us for ourselves and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him. Human beings seemingly are restless as we seek to find our rest in anything but God. John Calvin, the great Reformed theologian, said, in fact, that we in our hearts are idle factories. We are idle factories, always seeking to create something to find our identity in. Pascal, the philosopher and mathematician, historically talked about this God-shaped vacuum or void that all human beings carry with in our lives. And what we are seeking to do is to fill that void or that vacuum with things like idols, things like celebrity worship, things like money and power and control and reputation. And as a result of trying to fill this God-shaped vacuum or void with things that are not God, we live lives that are restless. But this is not the way that God intended us to be. God intended us to live lives that are outlined in what we looked at last week, Exodus chapter 20. And specifically, the first three commandments, the first three of the historic ten words of Exodus chapter 20 have to do with right worship, have to do with worshiping the God that created us, having to do with finding our rest in God who gives us rest, yet we rebel against this. It's part of our nature. It's part of our brokenness. It's part of our sinfulness to turn away from the God that made us and to seek to find life and identity and other things. It's as if we look at all these other things, whether it be a relationship or a job or an athletic team, as silly as that might sound, and we make this demand of those things. Tell me who I am. We look at other people, even our spouse, And we demand of them for them to tell us who we are. We show up to work on a Monday morning and we look at our job, figuratively speaking, and we say, tell me who I am. Or we look at our bank account. We look at our sales sheet. We look at our children and things about our children. Our children's report cards. And we look at them and we demand, tell me who I am. But that's not the way that we were intended to be. God made us for Himself and He made us to find rest in Him. Yet God's people rebelled against this. Jeremiah the prophet talks about this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking to a rebellious people. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two wrongs. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have made for themselves cisterns that are broken, that can hold no water. I'll repeat it and paraphrase it. Jeremiah, or the Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, looks at his people because you see, idolatry is the problem of God's people, if we want to summarize it in one word throughout Scripture. Sin is essentially synonymous 
with idolatry. And therefore, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, you've done two wrongs. First, you've turned your back and forsaken me. And then secondly, you, in forsaking me, the fountain of living water, you've started to make for yourselves broken cisterns that can actually hold no water. And why is water a salient image here? Because we're all thirsty. We're all longing for nourishment. We're all longing to be fed and to be filled. And God alone is the fountain of living water, yet we seek other streams of water. Os Guinness, the great cultural uh, apologist and theologian from Great Britain, says, Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in our lives. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. Peter Kreeft, who is a Christian philosopher respected across uh, not only Christian disciplines but academic disciplines as a whole, says the opposite of Christianity is not atheism. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism but idolatry. Point being, idolatry is a big problem. And we see in a spotlight sort of way in Exodus chapter 32, God's people break through and become themselves, that is, their broken selves. And we find them giving themselves to idols. And what I want us to do is to take this narrative, this specific instance in the redemptive history of God's people, and use it to shed light on a macro problem, not only in God's people throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Scriptures problem, but in our lives as well, the macro problem of idolatry. There's certain assertions we can make about the specific narrative with Exodus chapter 32, the first one being that we are all idolaters. This is our issue. We are all seeking to find our worth and our value. We put weight That's synonymous with this idea of worship. We put weight and significance in things in order to fill ourselves, in order to find ourselves. A.W. Tozer speaking on Romans chapter 1 where Paul the apostle talks about we have made this substitution that A.W. Tozer calls a monstrous substitution. The monstrous substitution that God's people have made or that all people have made is we have mistaken the created for the creator. It's a monstrous substitution that we make in our life. And it's a monstrous substitution that the Israelites and their journeying through the wilderness and their journey into home made. They made a monstrous substitution when they were pressed against the wall, when they were feeling uncertain and full of doubts in a way that's not dissimilar to how they reacted when they were on the banks of the Red Sea. Right? God had delivered them through the Passover. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh is pursuing them. And what did they do? Did they practice faith? Did they worship? Were they still and silent knowing that the Lord is God? No, they freaked out. And they're doing this again. Moses has been absent for 40 days from them. They're unclear at this point. They're not quite stabilized and solidified in what it means to be God's people and to live in this new covenant 
community. And in this pinch, they decide to substitute the created for the creator. Well, first of all, I want us to consider what idolatry literally and technically is in the Scriptures. If we look at the Hebrew word for idol, we come up with synonymous meanings such as doings. An idol has an association in the original Hebrew with doings or thoughts, pursuits, inventions, doings, thoughts, inventions, and pursuits. There's also a connotation with the word in the Hebrew and the concept in the Hebrew that idols are synonymous with stumbling blocks before God's people. And these stumbling blocks in the original language are synonymous with this idea of being the antithesis of peace, which is an irony because we pursue idols in order to find peace, but idolatry inherently in the Hebrew concept is the actual antithesis of peace. Ezekiel speaks about idolatry in a deeper way. It's not just a mental or a spiritual thing, but Ezekiel speaks about idols of our heart. And the understanding of the heart in the Old Testament, and the understanding of the heart in creation, and definitely the understanding of the heart in the Hebrew is a holistic understanding of the person. The heart is all of who we are. The heart is our mind, it's our emotions, it's our actions. The heart is our life. And Ezekiel says that we have idols within our hearts, within our very beings. The Scriptures also speak about idolatry as spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery. Because you see, to know God is not just a cognitive thing. To know God is a deeply intimate and relational thing. And therefore, to turn against God is to commit spiritual adultery. That's why the prophets throughout the Old Testament speak of God's people playing the whore before God with others when they turn to idols. And then Isaiah, the prophet in chapter 29, really exposes idolatry in the heart, when he says of God's people, you come near to me with your mouths and you honor me with your lips. However, your heart, your life is far from me. And how much do we need to hear that this morning, particularly in the Western world, particularly in a part of the country historically where broad evangelicalism has held such significant sway Culturally, even though those things and those tides are changing, how tempting is it for us in this context and our day to come near with our mouths and to profess with our lips, yet for our hearts and our very lives to be incompatible and to not be reciprocal with those things that our mouths say. And that's where God's people were In Exodus chapter 32, they spoke allegiance to the Lord, but they acted in a way that was different. I want us also to consider not only what idolatry is, but also the root of idolatry, essentially answering the question, why did they, that would be the first thing contextually to answer, why did they contextually choose to make a golden calf? 
And then what does that mean for us when we start to understand some of the pathology of our own idolatry? But the first thing that I want to say, and Paul speaks about this in 1 Thessalonians when he speaks about the mystery of iniquity, and he speaks in a sense about the absurdity of sin. Anytime we start to bear down into the pathology of any sin, and especially the concept of sin like idolatry, we have to bow on some level to the absurdity and to the mystery of iniquity. However, that doesn't mean that we can't find out anything about what the root of idolatry is in their life or in our life. We see in Exodus chapter 32, right from the very beginning in verse 1, that these people, God's people, became impatient. And that's really the first thing I want us to consider, at least in their context, as far as a root of their idolatry. What provoked them to make this golden calf? Impatience. They had not seen Moses for 40 days. They had actually not been out of Egypt that long, only a couple months, most likely. And it is important to be sympathetic and to keep in mind that when they were in Egypt, they were immersed in an idolatrous culture. They were immersed in a culture that did not worship Yahweh, the one true Lord. They were immersed in a culture that was not in covenant relationship with God, their Creator. And so that and very, much, very much so was in their DNA. Idolatrous worship was part of their ethos. And just a few months removed from that, Moses is removed from them for 40 days, and they revert back to what is comfortable, what is familiar just like us, right? And one way we could say it like this, even though you could take Israel out of Egypt, you could not take Egypt out of Israel. And they were impatient. Verse 1 just says that. Moses, you're taking too long. Aaron, do something. And then Aaron, in the classic human condition, bows to peer pressure and scrambles around and says, okay, and this is almost funny, By the way, it's really interesting throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into all these examples. Isaiah does a pretty fantastic job of this, of just showing the absurdity of idols in the Old Testament. But even just think about this concoction of worship that comes together here. Aaron says, okay, 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 let me think of something. What can we do? Give me your gold rings. Put them on the floor. Give me your gold earrings. Give me all the gold you have. Let's melt them. I mean, just think about the absurdity of this. And then let's make a golden calf. And we'll make an altar. And we'll bow down before it. What's the attraction of that? Not only does it you know, kind of scratch the itch of their impatience, it gives them something tangible. It gives them a quick fix. It gives them a way out of their discontentment. It gives them an opportunity to bolt away from the discomfort that they're experiencing. And the text goes on to tell us that they did this so quickly. I want to read verse 8 to you. And just listen. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You can even see there what's going on is some syncretistic worship. How blasphemous can you be and how absurd can you be that they make this golden calf, they get before the golden calf, and then they proclaim this holy statement that this golden calf has delivered them from Egypt. That's what God did. 
But it's amazing, and I love that the text tells us how quickly they turned. Just like me. Just like you. How quickly can we be reading God's Word and then the next minute be lusting in our minds? It reminds me of a trip that I took, a young life trip that I took in high school. I I was a sophomore and went to Windy Gap for the first time, which was a fantastic experience with Memphis Young Life. And there was a number of different schools that came on our trip. And there was one um, guy on the trip who was a senior, and we'll call him John. That seems to be a a good name to use. John uh, was kind of a known partier and went to a big public high school Germantown High School uh, in the Memphis area, but he went to Windy Gap, and it was even kind of shocking for anyone that knew that, man, it's crazy that John's going to Windy Gap, and and in so many ways, this is like the vision of of a Young Life camp in in such a beautiful way, and he had this incredible, really, and I I have no reason to doubt, um, legitimate spiritual experience in a way where he experienced either ultimate or some sort of conversion. on this trip. And so the way, you know, kind of the tenor of the bus on the way to Windy Gap was one way, and then on the way out of Windy Gap was totally different, not only with him, but with so many others. And that was really a beautiful thing to behold that they had, there had been the spiritual experience specifically in John's life. But it was something that was very interesting about John is that since he was a senior, um, he, was graduated, he had graduated high school and was coming to college. And as it were, coming home from Windy Gap to Memphis, we were going to come through Knoxville. And they had arranged that the bus was going to drop John off in Knoxville for UT orientation. And as we were around John on the bus talking about, you know, what UT orientation was going to be like, it's as if he just got his eyes like a horse headed for the barn. And about 30 minutes outside of Knoxville, he just turned into a different person. All he could talk about was the SAEs picking him up from the bus, from Windy Gap, from this spiritual experience to take him to the house and have like the party of his life at UT orientation. And of course, at the time... We thought it was funny. And reflecting back on it, um, it's just like us, is it not? How we can so quickly, just like the Israelites in Exodus 32, go from a deep and an intimate, and I have no reason to doubt, real spiritual experience on one day and the next day, have our eyes cut towards the parties at the SAE house, or whatever that is for you, figuratively. It's this desire to not feel, right? Surely the root of idolatry has something to do with avoiding what is present, like uncertainty that the Israelites were having to deal with, like doubt, like not having a God that they could speak to audibly and exchange a conversation with, like not having a God that they could sensory experience. So that would be something that they would want to avoid. Idolatry also is rooted in wanting to get what is missing. The root of idolatry is avoiding what is present and desiring to get what is missing. I've heard one pastors speak about what drives us to idolatry is along these lines. We've created in our minds what hell would be. And it would be a figurative hell, not the literal hell. And so whatever hell is to you, 
You know, hell to you is not having friends. Hell to you is not being married. Hell to you is, you know, having your bank account not have a certain number of zeros behind it. Hell to you is fill in the blank. So what we do in our own minds is we create that which is hell. And then what we do with our hell is we create a Messiah that takes us out of our hell. So we have a little hell, and little hell would be being overweight. Or a little hell would be not having friends. Or a little hell would be not having enough money. Or a little hell would not be having our kids respect us. Whatever hell is to you, it's not the real hell, but it's a figurative little hell. And we experience that. We want to avoid that. We want to get something that's missing. And then, therefore, what we do is we create a little Messiah that takes us out of our little hell. Little Messiahs like power. Little Messiahs like money. Little Messiahs like control, like approval, like reputation. These are the Messiahs that we look to to save us, to identify us. What if hell for you is your child not getting into Stanford? And if your child doesn't get into Stanford, then you're a nobody, and they're a nobody. And if they don't get into an elite school, then they can't get an elite job. And if you can't get an elite job, then you can't make elite money. And if you don't have an elite school, and you don't have elite money, and you don't have an elite job, then you're not an elite person. And if you're not an elite person, then why be a person? So hell is not getting into Stanford. And the Messiah is money and a cheating network of individuals in order to parlay you into Stanford. But before we get judgmental on people that would do that, we do that on micro levels every day in our own life. We pursue these very things so quickly, just like the Israelites did. And so often when we do it, we do it with things that are not actually inherently wrong or bad. They're actually good. Tim Keller says this, and he's so helpful in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and he's written on idolatry pretty extensively. He says this, sin isn't only doing bad things. You need to hear this, and I particularly want those of you who are exploring what it might mean to embrace Christ, and what those of you that are on a spiritual journey that would not put yourself inside the boundary of Christianity, forgive Christians for communicating that sin is simply doing bad things. Keller says, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even if it is a very good thing, more than building your life on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Let me go on because I think that you'll be able to track with this. It's so applicable. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be a family, <coughs> excuse me, or it can be children, it can be a career, it can be making money, it can be achievement, critical acclaim, or saving face, or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, security, comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains. A great political or social cause can be an idol. Your morality and virtue can be an idol. Even your religion or success in Christian ministry can be an idol. When your meaning in life is fixed 
on someone else or something else. We may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life has meaning. If I don't have that, then my life has no meaning. What is it for you? David Pallison, the Christian psychologist, speaks about x-ray questions that make us take inventory of our heart. What consumes our affections? What consumes our time, our thoughts, our resources? My life only has meaning if I can exercise. My life only has meaning if I can ride my bike. My life only has meaning if my child makes this soccer team. My life only has meaning if she says that she'll marry me or he will marry me. My life only has meaning if I get this job. My life only has meaning if I make this money. My life only has meaning if my house looks like this. That's idolatry. These are control positions in our life. Our life is not worth living if, according to the Israelites, we don't have a tangible God that will give us a quick fix that take us away from a true covenant relationship with God quickly where we turn to a golden calf and we find immediate pleasure, but really it's sugar-coated misery. That's what idolatry is. The sad thing about the result of idolatry, and we'll just fixate on this one word, in the text to keep us on point. Exodus chapter 32 verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So if the root of idolatry is all these things that we just spent time reflecting on, and I know it was a lot, what's the result of idolatry? Corruption. Idolatry, interestingly enough, not only alienates us from God, but it alienates us from others and ultimately alienates us from ourselves. This is the irony of idolatry. The very thing that these things promise, they don't deliver. These idols promise to deliver us from slavery and guess what they do? They enslave us, oftentimes to the point of what we would call addiction. There's a fine line between habitual indwelling sin spiritually and actual neurological and physical addiction, but that could be for another conversation, maybe a lecture. But the result of idolatry is corruption. The result of idolatry is oppression and enslavement, and that's why idols are such liars. They lie to us. They're unfaithful. And they never deliver. But the irony of them is we keep going back to them. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Not this time, the next time. This time. That time. How much, is more, how much money do I need? Just a little bit more. How many friends do I need? Just a few more. How much acclaim do I need among my peers? Just a little bit more. And we're enslaved playing the whore to these idols. And the result is corruption. Alienation from God. Alienation from self and alienation from others. Well, what's the answer? And we'll conclude with this. What's the way out of idolatry? We need a mediator. We need help. 
We need someone to intervene because left to ourselves and our own best thinking, we'll continue to give ourselves to what the Scriptures refer to as dumb idols. Well, the Israelites had a mediator. His name was Moses. Verses 30 through 33. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The result or the answer to idolatry is God's faithfulness in His grace. And this is the good news of the gospel. In case you're confused, Christianity at the end of the day is not about us not forsaking God. Are Christians called to not forsake God? Are we called to be loyal worshipers of the one true God? Absolutely. But is our relationship with Him built upon our loyalty and our faithfulness? I hope not. God, I hope not. But the good news of the gospel is this. When we are unfaithful, He remains faithful. When we are disloyal, He remains loyal. So much so that when we come to Him through our mediator now, not Moses, but Jesus, and we plead, we have been unfaithful. Or Jesus pleads even better yet, on our behalf, they have been unfaithful. They have been disloyal. They are impatient and they are discontent and they don't trust you. Would you forgive them? And God says, I will, because I'm eternally faithful. I'm eternally loyal. I am everything that their idols are not. And the more we see the beauty of who God is, the more we capture the beauty of the gospel, the less we will want to give ourselves to things like golden calves. Thomas Chalmers, in closing, the great Scottish Reformed theologian says this, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. And the new affection is the beauty of our mediator, Jesus. Let's pray in His name.